Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Warning. Kind of Murdery contains adult themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. It is not suitable for anyone. And we recommend you stop listening now. True crime with a dash of the paranormal, the garish, the strange, and the darkly comic. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and you've found your way to Kinda Murdery, a place that means more than just murder. It's my very own pocket dimension, home to a curated collection of bizarre and compelling stories, the unsolved, the unsettling, and the unbelievable. I cover it all, just so long as it's Kinda Murdery. Hey everybody, welcome to Kinda Murdery. I'm your host, Zevin Odelberg. Thank you for deciding to be here. As always, I'd like to start the show by reminding people that I have cerebral palsy and it is my hope that Kinda Murdery can become a support community for people with disabilities. So if you or anyone you know has a disability and is struggling with it, please do reach out to the show, kindamurdery at gmail.com or at kindamurdery on social media. I've got a humdinger here for you today, guys. I'm bringing out a story about a confessed child poisoner. Now, I should mention, there's an important clarification that needs to be made here, which is this is not a murderer who poisons children, but rather a child who allegedly poisoned people. Her name was Elsa Thompson. At the time of her confession in 1925, she was dubbed the Baby Borgia after Lucretia Borgia, the famous scion of the murderous Italian mob and Catholic dynasty family, because of the maturity, lack of emotion, and sheer sociopathic evil with which she seemed to delight in poisoning those around her. But before I jump into that story... I've got to introduce you to my guest today. Returning for a second time, much to my delight, we have the bard of British brain bashing. That's right, it's Stuart Blues from British Murders. Hey, Stuart, how you doing today? I am very well. How are you? I, I'm well as well. Uh, this story I'm about to tell was extremely haunting to research, but it's absolutely compelling. Let's put it that way. As a father... Mm-hmm. A mutual father, like me. Yes. Do you find it more difficult to research cases where kids are the victims or where kids are the killer? Victims. Um, mm-hmm. Although, in some ways, it's more chilling if children are the killer. Because I'm very aware of how absolutely vulnerable and defenseless I would be mm-hmm. if my daughter decided she wanted to poison the family. 
Um, but in terms of how it affects me emotionally, um, affects my happiness, my mood, how I feel in my heart, it's harder when the kids are the victims. Yeah. Certainly. Feels a bit more like a horror movie when they are the killers. How about you? Yeah, I think exactly the same. It's awful in both situations, but for different reasons. Mm. It's a little bit more upsetting when the child is the victim, especially a very young child. Mm-hmm. When the child is the killer, it's kind of like, there's a little bit of empathy, sympathy, one of the pathies, when you think, how's that kid being raised? Why is that mm-hmm. kid a murderer, a killer? Were they born that way? Do you believe in that stuff? Nature versus mm-hmm. nurture. But yeah, it's when kids are killers, we've got a couple of notorious killers here. Oh yeah, John, yeah. John Venables, and it's really bad that I forget the other kid's name. When they were, I think they were, 10 and 11 or something this was back in the 90s they killed oh a two-year-old a two-year-old boy called james bulger oh. and i'm not going to go into it because it's a case i'll never cover but the way they murdered this boy brutal disgusting huh. all right well i guess if you want to find out more about the murder of james bulger in the 90s google it or or don't um yeah. <laughs> seems like Stuart word of warning that yeah. you do not content um, warning on that one yeah absolutely well and I hear what you're saying in terms of how they were raised, what were the external <laughs> factors, I mean, where perhaps you can develop a level of sympathy for them. Um, but at least in the case of the story I'm about to tell, it seems as though Elsa Thompson poisoned people the same way other children might watch Sesame Street or play with Legos or uh, hop on the iPad or whatever they do for entertainment. She seemed to really just... Uh, be fascinated by and enjoy the act of poisoning people and watching them suffer and die. So, yikes. Wow. Of course, there's some mystery embedded in there and some facts that may or may not be facts. So that's what we'll be unpacking on the show here today. But on the surface, when I first discovered this story and before I you know, consulted multiple sources and et cetera, all the things that we do when we research for a show, it appeared that she was just a straight-up stone-cold killer. And and, uh, I was like, wow, because that's what I said where I felt makes me feel so vulnerable. Because you realize as adults, we sort of discount the agency of children to some degree. And you, you you would never admit to the possibility that your kid might decide to poison the whole family. And boy, if they did you'd be up a creek without a paddle, proverbially. proverbially. <laughs> yeah. Put them to bed and you kind of think, you're so innocent. Butter wouldn't melt, as we say. Uh, but then you sort of, as you leave the room, you turn back and you think, hmm, what damage yeah. could you do if you really put your mind to it? <laughs> exactly. We are accustomed as parents to being afraid for them, not mm-hmm. so much being afraid of them. Although I have to tell you, my daughter is 10 and a half going on about 17, and as they begin to approach those, those teenage years, the afraid of them factor is enhanced, certainly. <laughs> yeah, I can't say I'm looking forward to those years, but it's inevitable. It, it, well, absolutely. It's, it's what we all long for and hope for, and far better than the alternative, obviously. But yes, cherish. Cherish the, <laughs> the, the young the young days when every time you come home and walk in the door, you get a greeting as though you were Mick Jagger in 1965. <laughs> I, I remember that well, and I sure notice its absence these days. It's <laughs> oh, heartbreaking. All right, so let's let's dive into the story here. So uh, I'm going to take you back now to 19. 
23 in Canada, where the Thompson family resides. That's Russell and Mrs. Thompson, their daughter, who at this time is five years old, Elsa Thompson. She is the confessed poisoner we've been discussing. And she also has two younger sisters. Tragically, in 1923, those two younger sisters die of an extremely painful and somewhat protracted but also mysterious intestinal disease. And following the tragic death of those infant sisters, the younger sisters of Elsa Thompson, the family immigrates from Canada to Los Angeles, where they settle. In Los Angeles, Elsa Thompson's mother moves the family to Hollywood, where she hopes to make it in the moving pictures. She struggles to break into the movie business, just like everyone else in the world, and ultimately the parents are unable to get along in their new country and new city, and they divorce. Russell Thompson moves to the Santa Ana area in Orange County, a couple hours south of Los Angeles, and Elsa's mother continues to live in Hollywood with hopes of breaking into the movie business, but ultimately she takes a job as a store clerk in downtown Los Angeles. Elsa's now six and then seven years old, and the upshot of her father being gone and her mother having a full-time job as a clerk is that there's no one around to take care of young Elsa. And so she is put in the care of essentially, I mean, today it would be daycares, right? Uh, mm. Back then it was this mature women some somewhere north of 40 who had families of their own and were willing to watch someone else's kids. And functionally, Elsa moves in with these daycare providers. She spends most of her time actually living with them. Mm. So her first daycare provider is a woman named Mrs. Steele, who's in the grandmother age. And Mrs. Steele has an adult daughter. The adult daughter dies not long after Elsa has been put into her mother's care of a protracted and painful stomach ailment. Perhaps we see a pattern emerging here. Back in Canada, who was there? Elsa Thompson and her two young sisters died of a protracted stomach ailment. She moves to America. She moves in with a care provider whose adult daughter, shortly thereafter, dies of a protracted and painful stomach ailment. She moves into a second care provider's home, a woman named Mrs. Platt. It should also be mentioned that Elsa Thompson had another younger sister, who at this point is two years old. So a baby who was born shortly after the family moved from Canada to Los Angeles and is now the two-year-old sister of Elsa Thompson and also partaking of the daycare. So the first poisoning exploit in the Platts family came two weeks after Elsa arrived. The victim this time was Elsa's little two-year-old sister, Maxine Thompson. The child was suddenly seized with violent stomach pains, said Mrs. Platt. I noticed she was burned around the mouth, and thinking that she might have got hold of some kind of poison, I gave her the usual anecdotes. She was delirious for two days and almost died. I called the doctor and he treated her, but was unable to diagnose the illness. The doctor was particularly puzzled by the way that the sickness held on. Later, when Elsa confessed, and she will confess and will be there shortly, it was all explained. She admitted she had been placing battery fluid in the cough medicine that the physician had ordered for Maxine. Damn. Yeah. So, within a couple weeks of Elsa Thompson arriving at the Platt's home, the entire family had fallen ill of various unexpected and, and painful ailments. 
And at this point, at this point, Mrs. Platt flat out accuses Elsa of trying to poison her family and drags Elsa into the authorities, into the police, and says, this little demon child is trying to poison my family. And of course, the police are incredulous. I mean, Elsa Thompson is seven years old. Seven years old. And I will post a picture of Elsa Thompson on Instagram so you guys can all see what she looks like. She is quite a beautiful young girl. She was described as being preternaturally intelligent, sort of what we might expect from the Hollywood version of a sociopath. But if you look at her, you see a very pretty young girl with dark raven hair and pale blue eyes. Uh, she almost looks like a child Jennifer Connelly or something. So you can also kind of understand just based on physical charisma and the fact that she was so precocious that no adult would want to believe that she could possibly have committed these awful, awful acts. But Mrs. Platt certainly believes it. Let me ask you something, uh, Stuart. Mm -hmm. When you were a kid, did you ever get accused of something that you did not do and have a hell of a time convincing everyone you were innocent? Or conversely, did you ever get up to some kind of mischief that you either fully got away with or managed to pin on a sibling or someone else? Any hijinks like that in your life? I can't use the sibling excuse because I'm an only one. I'm trying to think, there was a time where behind my mum and dad's house, they were converting the area. It used to be all grassland and they were converting it into housing so they were building new houses on essentially this old wasteland mm. and for a long period of time it was a building site now me being naive this isn't something that necessarily i did wrong i was perhaps misled by some older boys sure sure pass the buck absolutely yeah yeah there you go and they were like oh we'll come back on the building site you know and i'm thinking is this right is this legal are we allowed not is this legal <laughs> are we allowed to do this yeah, of course we are. Of course we are. So we were onto this building site, snuck on the building site, climbing up these ladders in these houses. And you were you obviously know. not allowed to do this. <laughs> Absolutely not. And I was probably eight or nine or something. I was quite young and the boys were probably 14. They were just neighbors on the street. And I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on. And then I see my dad cycling back down the road and we'd been gone for about an hour and he'd been to everyone's house in the village searching for me on his bike. Have you seen him? And then I walked <laughs> home and they, they were just like, where have you been? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I've been back there. Huh. But it, it wasn't my fault, yeah, in my yeah. opinion. It wasn't my fault. So when you were scaling all these ladders, practicing for your future careers as second story men, cat burglars, rapples, if you will, <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you get up to any mischief in any of those those buildings or was it purely sort of a, a climbing apparatus for you boys it was more practicing to be a fireman so climbing up and down uh. ladders kind of thing because <laughs> i don't think the inside of the buildings were actually completed at that point it was more the shell of the building so we would climb up the ladders right to the top peek through the windows that didn't have glass in them yet and see the neighbors peering out to see what those boys were doing on the building site. Oh, Very man. naughty. Don't you know, do it, you, kids. You are, a, you are a smooth customer, Stuart Blues from British Murders, because I love how you immediately, immediately had an altruistic reason why you were getting up to all this no good. Well, I was practicing to be a fireman. I was practicing to be a hero, for Pete's sakes. Don't blame me. You've always got to have something <laughs> planned to tell the authorities at the back of your mind. Oh, that's that's funny. 
I'll give you one from my own life that's sort of the inverse. Not that I didn't get up to hijinks as well, mind you, I did. This was an instance where I was innocent and, and couldn't get anyone to believe me. So I grew up very, I think you and I have talked about this before, but I grew up very rurally, uh, middle mm -hmm. of the woods, an hour from the nearest town, no, not even really a village, just like the countryside, the wilderness. And one of our neighbors, when I say our neighbors, he was probably, his house was probably two miles of gravel road away from us, but he kept a lot of sheep and he raised guinea pigs and turkeys and chickens and all kinds of farm animals. And I was mm. probably only four years old at the time. I have almost no memories from this time in my life, which should tell you sort of what a foundational memory the one that's coming up is. Now, my mom was in charge of dressing me at this stage in my life. She also, unfortunately for me, cut my hair, and she used to give me, even over my four-year-old, five-year-old protests, the classic Will Byers rainbow bangs haircut. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And on this particular day, along with those rainbow bangs, I was wearing, and God knows why, a green, a green shirt with long sleeves and bright red sweatpants. So I was dressed like the elf on the shelf. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Literally. And Good look. we go to this neighbor's house and my mother and the neighbor go inside to have coffee and conversation and uh, they leave me outside to bop around the bop around the farmyard and I'm standing there minding my own business probably spacing out breathing through my mouth a little bit and along comes this Tom turkey and from about 20 yards away or so he sees me and he puffs all up and gobble 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 and I have to assume he was perhaps set off by the bright red pants, like he thought that was some kind of aggressive display on my part. It wasn't. I was just literally standing around drooling out of one side of my mouth. Gobble, gobble, gobble. And I, I crap you not, I shit you not, he essentially does like the bullfight, like the Toro move where he scratches one turkey claw in the dirt three times. <laughs> And then this giant turkey, you know, we all know how big a turkey can be. I mean, they can weigh 30 plus pounds. He bull charges me. And again, I'm just standing there minding my own business. He bull charges me right before he gets to me, pumps his wings, leaps up, hammers me right in the center of the chest with his two turkey claw feet, knocks me on the ground, stays on my chest, like basically clawing my chest, standing on top of me, gets his turkey face down in my face, and he's like, like he basically is like, you like that, bitch? You like that? <laughs> That's a great, so, great turkey impression. I love that. Yeah. 
<laughs> turkeys are very aggressive, hostile, you know, sort of alpha bro animals. Again, you, I think you can kind of understand now why this is one of one of the things I do remember from being four years old. So once he finally decides that he has thoroughly made me his his bitch, for lack of a better way to put it, he then you know wanders off with a couple more gobbles and leaves me you know ashamed of myself lying in the dirt in my elf on the shelf outfit. So I and I've always had a strongly refined sense of injustice, especially as it relates to injustices done to myself. I run inside, I interrupt the coffee the adults are having, and I say, Mom, Mom, Michael's turkey just attacked me. And of course, Michael's like, well, what? I was like, yeah, the, I was just standing there, and the turkey just charged me, bowled me over, then it like stood on my chest and swore at me for a while. I mean, I didn't say that it swore at me. I wasn't mm. that on top of things at four, but I described <laughs> what had happened to me. And neither of them, neither of them believed me, neither of them, which was, which was traumatic. I mean, I I feel like the neighbor refused to believe me just out of sort of concern over liability, Mm. but even my mother thought I was making it up and and that was scarring in its, its own way. It wasn't too long ago. I was on Facebook with a group of podcasters I know through Hillbilly Horror Stories, which is based out of Kentucky. And somebody had posted in a pod group, tell a story from your childhood about something funny that happened to you with a farm animal, you know, which could go all kinds of ways wrong, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I shared my Tom Turkey story and a bunch of people chimed in who had had similar experiences. So. <laughs> wow. Wild. My child self felt very validated. Apparently this is a common interaction with an a-hole Tom Turkey. <laughs> wow. I just got this vision of you tying this. Mommy, mommy. Yeah. The turkey just made me his bitch. <laughs> that's, that's exactly Language. What happened. Yeah, 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 right. Oh, man. Of course, this would have been about 1985, so I don't think that, you know, made me his bitch had quite filtered into the vernacular <laughs> like perhaps it has now. But, but anywho, there's a little uh, light-hearted palate cleanser for everybody, and now I think it's time to dive back into the story of the baby Borgia. Elsa Thompson, notorious child poisoner. Again, child who poisons, not person who poisons children. So she gets dragged into the police. Mrs. Platt says this demon child has been trying to poison my entire family. They don't believe it. But much to everyone's surprise, Elsa readily confesses. And she does so completely calmly and without emotion. And she confesses to more than simply attempting to poison Mrs. Platt's family, she essentially lays out her entire sordid resume. And it starts with the poisoning of her two infant sisters when she was only five years old in Canada. Here's what she has to say about how she accomplished that. And this comes directly from the Los Angeles Times in 1925, and it was printed as her actual words and statement. And she says, You'll forgive me for not trying to imitate the vocal tones of a seven-year-old girl. I think it's probably impossible, so we'll just move forward. She says, I took a glass jar out of the kitchen, and I broke it on the walk in front of the house. I gathered up the little chips of glass, put them in my apron, and I brought them back into the kitchen. I put these pieces into the cornflakes, which were in two bowls on a table. When my mother came in and asked me if I wanted breakfast, I told her I wasn't hungry. I knew the glass would kill them because mother told me one day when I was playing with some that it would kill me if I swallowed it. When my sisters were eating breakfast, I went out and played. 
Then I brushed up the rest of the glass on the sidewalk and I threw it in the alley. My sisters got sick two days after. The doctors thought they had typhoid fever. I heard them crying and it made me feel good all over. But I'm sorry now that they died. One of them was so pretty. Yikes. Does it count as poisoning if you put glass in someone's cornflakes? Is that what it's classified as? That is a horrific and wonderful question. I don't have an easy answer for you. Um, If I were to postulate something or suppose something that drives my wife insane when I do it, um, I would suppose that anything potentially deadly or deadly that you slip into someone's food without their knowledge that subsequently results in their death could perhaps be classified as poisoning. Makes sense. I suppose it's still a foreign body. Right. I I know what you mean, though, in the sense that, like, glass isn't necessarily going to be absorbed into the body the way that we traditionally think of poisoning. Yeah, so it wouldn't lead to, like, respiratory failure. It would be more cutting up your inside organs and maybe bleeding out or something. Right, like diverticulitis, like it would get Mm -hmm. lodged in your intestine and the subsequent infection would kill you. In fact, she alludes to there that the doctors believed that her sisters had typhoid, which would suggest that they came down with really high fevers as a result. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I... To your point, I suppose you could also ask, like, if you were to intentionally stick peanuts into a bowl and give it to someone who had a dangerous peanut allergy, that I think would also be poisoning, even though peanuts aren't necessarily poison, right? Although closer to poison because those would be absorbed. So I I take your point. I take your point. It, It seems almost like, I don't know what else you would call it other than poisoning. Yeah, makes sense. Guys, if you want to reach out and propose other words for the verb that goes along with causing someone to d- digest broken glass, go ahead, although this seems all awfully ghoulish to be supposing about, so I'm going to move on. So she then says that not long after the twins died, her parents started to fight, and then they moved to Los Angeles, and uh, you know, shortly thereafter they separated, which brings us to her next confession. She was living with a caretaker while her mother worked named Mrs. Steele, who had, as I alluded to, an adult-aged daughter, referred to as Miss Steele. And here's what Elsa has to say about Miss Steele. She says, I didn't like Miss Steele. She gave me a licking once, but she'd also shown me, not long before that licking, the ant paste she had purchased to poison the ants. And she had warned me, Never eat the ant paste because it will kill you, which of course gave me an idea. I put the ant paste in the grape nuts that she was about to eat. The dish was on the table and she was in another room washing one of the other children. And so, as I said, she told me that the ant paste was poison and would kill me if I put it in my mouth, and that's how I knew it would kill her. She ate the grape nuts and she died in great pain. I'm trying not to laugh because it's horrible. (laughs) But... As a parent, all we do is tell our kids not to do things. Ironically, in the case of this girl, these people who would go on to be killed by her, so we think, mm-hmm. were actually architects of their own demise because that, they were saying, this is not what you do, so do it to me and I will die kind of thing. Right. Weird. That's exactly right. They were brainstorming with her. Mm. One of the things that is, to your point entertaining or at least interesting about this case is that every time that Elsa Thompson 
was told, make sure you don't eat this. It's poison. She then said, thanks for the great idea. I'll yeah. give you a co-songwriting credit. And then she went and used it to poison someone. Don't worry. I won't eat it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Can't the, say the, the, the same for you. Oh, but she's doing the Miss, Mr. Burns finger. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy. Unreal. Oh, man. No one should be chuckling right now, least of all us, but I, there you go. You know, you have to break the tension somehow. Exactly. And sometimes I lecture people about that on this show, meaning that I, I, I'm like, now remember, humor is a legitimate way to deal with the emotions that arise from trauma. Um, and everybody mm -hmm. tracks those emotions differently, but it is a legitimate way to deal with it. Because I feel like at times that we're in a moment in our culture right now where if you express anything other than consternation, horror, and outrage when something horrible happens, you can be vilified as a terrible person. And mm -hmm. I want everyone to know, and this is not just a spirited defense of myself or, or Stuart for almost chuckling at something awful, but if you happen to be someone who processes pain through humor, uh, that is okay. And if you happen to be someone who processes pain absolutely not through humor, that is okay too. And, and both sides of the coin should understand that just because they don't understand someone else's emotional process doesn't mean that it needs to be a reason for attack or vilification. So that's my, uh, that's my preaching to the preaching to the audience there. But that is an important thing to me because I have before been accused of being an awful person for laughing at the wrong time. But nervous laughter is a steam release valve for me sometimes. You've said it well. At the start of each of my episodes, I have two completely nonsense i call them icebreakers mm. one of them is a little fact that my, my daughter got me this pack of cards and they're called daddy facts so the, mm. the the segment is is my little girl saying welcome to daddy facts and i read out a stupid fact and have a joke about it nothing to do with true crime or the case and then i do a little haiku which is like a poem a three-word poem it's kind of case related but it's just nonsense you'd think why mm. the hell am i listening to this but to me that relieves the tension not only for me but for the audience so they rather than coming in if they've never listened before thinking what's this going to be like if i just chat to them about something completely nonsense make myself a bit more vulnerable they'll feel comfortable and then we can mm. get into the the hard stuff yeah absolutely i think that's very well put and you know when you tell stories like we tell and again, Stuart is the host of a fantastic podcast, everybody. It's called British Murders. He exclusively covers British murders. But I think even over here in America, we know that uh, the Brits are second to none when it comes to doing terrible things. <laughs> so there are some <laughs> tremendous, tremendous true crime murder stories and absolutely colorful and horrible killers in England, as you might imagine. And nobody covers them better than Stuart. So please do go check out British Murders, subscribe to it, listen to it, review it, just engage with it. It's a wonderful show. He's a great guy. He's fun to listen to. You can tell. Listen to him right now. Um, but you. yeah, exactly. And I think what attracts me to true crime and to murder stories, right, is not reveling in the murder and the loss of life and in the tragedy, but it is reveling in the twists and turns of the stories and how often the worst of humanity also brings out the most bizarre and unlikely, sometimes humorously stupidest, all of those things emerge out of these stories because of how incredibly high the emotional leverage is. They become sort of a microcosm for the entire human experience. And so that's what fascinates me about them. 
but certainly not the horror and the murder and the loss of life and the pain and the violence. That's not the fascinating part. And in fact, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Stuart, but for those of us who tell these stories all the time, if we were to marinate in the horror and the outrage and the grief constantly, I don't think for me anyway that it would be possible to tell these types of stories. I have to find other ways to experience them. Yeah, it would also be difficult, incredibly difficult, to pump out as many episodes as frequently as you and I do. Yeah. Because yeah. it can take a mental toll on researching cases about, especially when it's about kids, about so much death, surrounded by death. And if you do a crime on murders, a podcast on murders, beg your pardon, everything's death. Yeah. No, you you're to, absolutely right. You have, have to relieve the tension. You do. And, and it does happen. I, I did an episode not terribly long ago called The Gorilla Strangler about just a horrific, he was considered to be in, in many ways like the first 20th century American serial killer, the most prolific for a long time until Ted Bundy came along. I don't know why I'm blanking on his name, but he was a terrible strangling necrophilic rapist. And when I was researching that episode and then recording it, I mean, man, it took it out of me. Like, I, it took a while to sort of emotionally recover from, from that story. And so, yeah, to your point, you can't just do that twice a week or mm. once a week all the time if that's where your head is always. It wasn't um, Albert Fish, was it? No. Gosh. I'm just going to Google it. Gosh darn Cause, it. Because Albert Fish... He was a sick motherfucker. Earl Nelson was his name. Okay, I've not heard of him. He inspired an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Shadow of a Doubt, and he was called the Gorilla Strangler, and he would... Essentially, he would come across... He would find a woman who was renting a room in her house, like a potential landlady, mm -hmm. and he would show up and be charming and say that he just wanted to rent a room and he'd advance her first month's rent, and then if she were home alone, he would strangle her and subsequently outrage her corpse and then move on and do it again in short order and it, he was just a really horrible horrible guy but yeah so that was that story and it was a really hard one to be around i'll tell you mm. so tell us about a little bit about albert fish and then we should get back to uh the baby borgia yeah well albert fish, he was an american guy so my knowledge isn't great but he I'm, i think he was a serial killer but this was a guy who was really into s&m to the mm -hmm. point where he would like insert needles into his back passage. And there's, there's photos oh, on no. Google images because he stuck in that many that they got stuck. And there's oh, x-rays of, so the x-ray you can see is his hip bones and sticking mm -hmm. up into his cavity, oh <laughs> if you oh like, God. is like 50 needles. Have you seen the picture? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, well, just to... No, I have. I haven't seen the picture. No, I haven't uh, seen the picture. I thought you'd looked at it while I was talking. Oh no, but well, I I can if you'd like. Here, Please, I, just I will. Albert Fish X-ray will be the one. Oh, oh my God! Holy yeah. hell! That's so, self-inflicted. Yeah. Wow! Wow! Uh, yeah. So basically, his let's call it his hip cavity is just chock full of needles. Yeah, loved uh, it. Anal acupuncture, we'll call it. Um. So yeah. just, this is really horrifying. Thank you for, for directing me to that image. You're welcome. Just to lighten the mood a little bit, you know, a, a man was uh, admitted to the hospital because he had shoved dozens of tiny toy horses up his butt. And doctors described his condition as stable. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay. I like it. All right. There's your uh, inappropriate dad joke of the day. 
And let's get back to the baby Borgia. So she's just recounted how she went about murdering her infant sisters, and then how she went about murdering the adult daughter of the first of her caretakers with the ant paste in the grape nuts. When she described poisoning Miss Steele, and then watching her suffer for some time before she died, the judge asked her how that made her feel. Um... And she replied, just like it did when my little sisters were sick. And of course, what she had said about that was that it made her feel, quote, good all over. Um, so then, after this happens, she moves to the Platts home. And she starts to talk about some of the poisoning attempts that she undertook in the Platts home. She said, I got up at night after everyone else was in bed. A friend of Mrs. Platts had recently installed a radio in the house, and he'd shown me the battery and warned me to never put it in my mouth because the acid inside would kill me. She said, so I went and I got the acid out of the radio battery. I used a spoon and I put it into a can. The next morning when I was alone in the kitchen, I put some of it in the coffee. I didn't drink any of the coffee because I had put that stuff in it and I thought they'd all die. She said, Mrs. Platt was good to me, but I wanted to see her suffer. Then she said, they all got kind of sick that day, everybody who drank the coffee, but they didn't die. So that night after she'd gone to bed, Elsa couldn't sleep because she was so frustrated that she'd failed to kill everyone with the battery acid coffee. So she lay awake, picturing over and over the pleasure of seeing the Platt family die. And at last, when she was sure everyone was asleep, she tiptoed downstairs in her little nightgown, quietly lighted a candle, got out her bottle of battery acid, and standing over the stove, poured the stuff on some lamb chops, which Mrs. Platt had left in the frying pan, all ready to be warmed up for breakfast. Ugh, what a mental picture, that little clear-eyed, innocent-faced child standing there with the flickering lights of a candle playing upon her, and the fingers of death bending her wrist. She tells it thus, So the next night I got up and I got the can with the acid and I put some of it on the lamb chops that were in the frying pan on the stove for the next morning's breakfast. Mrs. Platt was in bed when I did this and no one saw me. The next morning too I put some more acid in the coffee and some in the mush. I wanted to kill Lou Platt's, Mrs. Platt's daughter. She's 12 years old and I didn't like her. Now, Elsa Thompson's mother who's there at the police station for this confession along with Mrs. Platt, is aghast at the tale, of course, and refuses to believe it. But she does say, relative to the twins in their former life in Canada, the, the baby sisters that Elsa had poisoned, she says, They played in a sand pile in the back of the house. Several times the twins came into the house with sand in their mouths, and I scolded them for it. Now, Elsa says she made them eat the sand after she put the glass in it. Well, she also put the glass in the cornflakes. That was a, that's an example of when the, uh, the story changed on me there. <laughs> one newspaper said glass in the cornflakes. This one says glass in the sandbox. Yeah. There clearly at times, particularly in this era, is some artistic license in the way things are described. Fake news is not new. <laughs> so yes, yeah, she attempted to poison the plats with the lamb chops and the coffee and the battery acid, etc. And it was at this point when everyone had fallen sick, and then another time when a friend of the Platts shortly after came over and ate some peaches that he said tasted horribly bitter and awful. His name was Kearns. He was a firefighter. And then he fell very ill, and subsequently Elsa Thompson admitted that she had also put battery acid in the peaches that he ate. So these, these attempts to poison the family willy-nilly are what inspired Mrs. Platt to go in and force Elsa to confess, 
although she didn't really force her. She went in and accused her, and Elsa seemed to be happy to confess. So no adult, and again, I said I will post her photo on Instagram, but she she looks like an innocent child. She was an innocent child, ostensibly. She's seven years old, a little seven-year-old girl with bright blue eyes, etc. Nobody really wants to believe that this can possibly be true. And a, the judge who hears these confessions refuses to just outright declare the girl insane, but he does remand her to an asylum for further observation. And the doctors who hear her confessions and then proceed to grill her about the details eventually become convinced that she is in fact telling the truth and that she did in fact poison all of these people because they make her repeat the story so many times. Uh, not only is she dispassionate, but she has every detail and they cannot trip her up. And so it's beginning to look like seven-year-old Elsa Thompson may spend essentially the entirety of her life in an asylum as an insane, murderous, poisoning sociopath. And little angel, you know. <laughs> Gosh. It's a thin line. Doctors decide that her stories are believable, but then psychiatrists come in who are also doctors, I'm not saying they aren't, but I believe it was medical doctors who, buy her, who bought her story. And then the psychiatrist came in and said, no, there's no way. This has been suggested. This has been coached. And some four days later, around February 10th, Elsa Thompson recants her confessions. And she says that Mrs. Platt told her to say all this stuff. She essentially says, she kept telling me I did it, specifically about the murder of her baby sisters in Canada. She kept telling me I did it. I got sick of her bothering me. And so finally I just said, yeah, fine, I did it. Hmm. Now we all know that children can be suggestible. And so this, this immediately strikes a chord with everyone. As soon as she recants, essentially all the authorities from the doctors to the judge, everyone goes, oh, phew, thank goodness. She's not a poisoner. She's just a kid. And she gets released from the asylum and handed over into the custody of her father where she goes to live in Santa Ana and lives an ordinary life. Um, as far as anyone knows, not much is known about her. In fact, I looked high and low for further knowledge about what happened to her. And from best as I can tell, the only other time she pops up is 10 years later when a girl of the same name and spelling, Elsa Thompson, and that's spelled, by the way, A-L-S-A in this case, so not a terribly common name, with a father named Russell Thompson, gets married in Santa Ana in 1935 at the questionably young age of 17. But if you're willing to assume that it's unlikely that there is a different Elsa Thompson spelled A-L-S-A with a father named Russell Thompson in Santa Ana, California, then that was likely her, and that suggests that she went on to live an ordinary life. Hmm. So this story took a quick turn, a whiplash turn, I recognize that, from, oh my gosh, this horrific sociopathic child poisoner who seems thrilled by the pain that she caused and the rain of death that she poured down upon everyone who ever cared about her, and now, oh wait, she's just an ordinary girl and everything's fine. Like, what the hell? Did you get a little bit of storyline whiplash there, Stuart? It's amazing how many checks they didn't do. They weren't very stringent back in the 20s, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not like now, oh, you've, you've confessed to killing all these people. I know not a confession isn't necessarily good enough in this day and age. We need evidence and all that kind of stuff. Right. But to, to just say, oh, no, I, I, I was lying. I didn't say that. They told yeah. me to say, oh, right, cool. <laughs> on, 
So yeah, here's your stuff. Bye. <laughs> right, right. I mean, gosh. It's funny when you said this amazing how many checks they didn't do in the 20s. I immediately thought, yeah, they left the wood alcohol in the bathtub gin for Pete's <laughs> sake. <laughs> and speaking of the deleterious effects of wood alcohol, check out last week's episode, The Murder of Iron Mike Malloy. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. And uh, methanol does play a key role in that story. Nice. So here's where I came up with a unifying theory of everything. Because by the way... It was never demonstrated that she did not kill anyone. And when I really dove into this story, I had my doubts because it's described over and over that she was able to recount every detail of these murders. This is when they showed me this particular poison. This is how I used it. This is how I felt afterwards. And that no matter how hard these adults tried... They couldn't trip her up in any of her details. And so I'm going to call this the Baby Borgia Catch-22. And this is what I want to run by you, Stuart. Mm -hmm. So my feeling is that if she was coached, she would have made mistakes and screwed up the details. Seven years old, she's essentially learning lines. And no matter how much they tried to befuddle her, they couldn't. And then I thought to myself, well, okay, the only way that she would, that she could go through all this having been coached and not screw up any of the details would be if she was some kind of a preternaturally intelligent, mature genius girl, which goes along with the sociopath narrative. But then you got to think, well, if she was that, if she was a genius and so mature for her age, she likely would have been too mentally strong to consent to being coached or suggested. So there's a, there's a catch 22 there. It's like if she were coached, she would have screwed up the details. If she didn't screw up the details at all at seven years old with this very complex narrative of all these people that she killed in all these different ways, then she would probably have to be some kind of a genius or highly gifted person with a near-perfect memory. In which case, if she had that kind of mental strength, it's hard to believe that she would have been so suggestible or willing to be coached. Mm. So, so but based on what you've said then, she was either a young serial killer very young mm. she was a future oscar winning actress mm. or a future mensa member now based on the fact that apart from that one article in 1935 where we think it's her because it's the same name it's a unique first name where she lives and her dad's got the same name yeah so we I, we, i'm we, willing we, to say that it's her i'm virtually so certain it, it's her she's the first time i've ever seen that spelling of elsa for one but this uh, but is anyway. my point Apart from that one article, if she was such a gifted kid, whether that be mentally, whether that be acting-wise, mm. which some kids do, they have a gift for acting, child actors mm -hmm, go into mm -hmm. great things, you have child mm -hmm. geniuses. Mm -hmm. I think there would have been more reporting about her in her adult life. She would have gone on to achieve something of note that you could yes. have found out about, yes. which kind of goes against that that was the case. To be coached at that age and remember it, like you say, without tripping up, for that amount of time and that amount of detail, not just right. meticulous, this is what happened step by step, but also how you felt. Right. Would have been amazing. And you're talking about professional child psychologist, psychiatrist, granted in 1925, but still who want to trip her up because nobody wants her to be this Lucretia Borgia circa 20th century. Nobody wants her to be a stone-hearted, ice-blooded poisoner. So mm. that goes back to if she was indeed coached and was able to confound the attempts of 
professionals to confuse her, she's probably some kind of a genius, in which case was she really coached? It's this, it's that one can't be true without the other, but if the other's true, the first one can't be, is where I kept getting stuck. Mm. Do you think a kid of that age, you've had a daughter of her age, she's mm-hmm. a little bit older now, your girl, mine isn't there yet, so I can't mm. really relate as to what their capabilities are at seven or a little bit older. Do you think doing something like, because you could say to a kid, don't drink battery acid, and they go, okay, don't drink battery acid. To then think, to use that against an adult, but not only to mentally think that, but to practically think, right, in order to get that battery acid, this is what I need to do. I need to get the lid off. I need to scoop it out. I need to put it onto food and in coffee secretly. Right, right, right. Well, like, that again, uh, uh, Lamb yeah. chops in the morning, by the way, that's the dream. Right. Oh, do, oh <laughs> can, man, can I, I've just had say. that once or twice. So delicious, my goodness. Absolutely but, yes, you know. But just, lamb just, chops dose of battery acid. Yeah, I mean, how how's she doing that? How does she know to be so coy about it? How does she know to be so delicate as to not be detected at such a young age? To right. me, it kind of feels like a lot of what's happened is circumstantial. Mm. Wherever she goes, people die that are close to her. But we're talking about a year or a, a decade where illness was a lot more rife than it is mm-hmm. now. Hygiene was a lot poorer than what it is now. Mm-hmm. And perhaps if she didn't like her twin sisters, she might have been jealous of them because they were younger. Mm-hmm. If they have randomly died, which was more common back then, perhaps she's made up the fact that she was responsible to give herself a bit of power. Yes, I like that. That's a great point. That's a great point. And yeah, I mean, kids do have very active imaginary worlds. And everything you're saying about how this all went down. I think, again, if she were some kind of a genius, I think there are certainly, it has been demonstrated that you could be Mozart or any kind of a genius where you do have competencies and awarenesses that are fully adult and um, go beyond what we would expect to be possible of a child. So I think she could have plotted this sort of thing if she was, in fact, that kind of a genius. One of the things I asked my wife was, would a five-year-old, which is how old she would have been when she crushed up the glass to feed to her baby sisters. God, so awful when you say it out loud. Would she have had the, you know, hand strength or dexterity to even achieve that? Because one thinks that in order for the mother to not detect the glass, or even for the babies eating it to not detect the glass, that it would have had to have been ground up or something in some kind of a mortar and pestle, even though you know, Elsa says that she just smashed it on the sidewalk. I think these are all great points, and I think you're right about inventing a narrative that empowers her. I really like the psychological intelligence of that take. I should say that there are there's at least one key fact that I'm withholding right now just for the, the fun of the mystery. I suppose I can share it now. Because obviously, we started out this story acting like all of these things she said she did, she did. Which is how I often like to tell incredible murder stories and then unpack the truth. Well, one thing would be that Mrs. Steele, the first caregiver who Elsa allegedly poisoned with the ant paste in the grape nuts. Gosh, there's just something irrepressibly comic about the ant paste in the grape nuts. I mean, sorry, but it just, it's <laughs> funny to me. I can't get around it. Uh, there was some famous poet, right, who said that the two most beautiful words in the English language were like cellar door or something, the combination of those two, but it was something about ant paste in the grape nuts. Anyway, Mrs. Steele says, oh no, she did not poison my daughter. My daughter died of stomach cancer. 
She fell sick long before we had ever met Elsa Thompson, and I was there in the hospital when the doctors said that she died of stomach cancer. So there's no way she killed my daughter. So that that seems to clear up a lot of things right away, but two things. One, I think really speaks to what you just mentioned about feeling empowered, and the other is that it was 1925. Medicine was pretty darn medieval still. Awareness of cancer was in its infancy. So it's not fully impossible to me that the doctors could think that Miss Steele died of stomach cancer when in fact she died of ant paste poisoning. Or even that she may have been battling stomach cancer or another ailment and had her death hastened by ant Mm -hmm. paste in the grape nuts. So as much as that seems to let Elsa off the hook, I'm not sure it does fully. Um, Secondly, to your point about doing something that makes her feel empowered, that really resonates with me in terms of imagine if you were a child and everywhere you went, someone close to you died. Children, humans for that matter, but children tend to blame themselves for things. Famously, children blame themselves when their parents get divorced, right? Mm-hmm. So the baby sisters die right afterwards. The parents' relationship fractures. Shortly thereafter, they get divorced. It's possible that Elsa is an absolutely ordinary seven-year-old, feels like it's her fault that her parents got divorced, feels like her parents got divorced because her baby sisters died, feels like she must have killed her baby sisters. Like, feels the emotions of that, if not actually thinks that exactly, and then invents the story that fits the emotions. I think that's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. I agree. Here's another possibility. Mom wants to be an actress, gets divorced, works all day at the shop downtown, has to pay Mrs. Platt to take care of her daughter. Perhaps struggling to make ends meet, likely struggling to make ends meet, she stops paying. Elsa is living with Mrs. Platt. Mrs. Platt is sick of having this girl around, taking care of her, dealing with her, feeding her, paying for her, when the mother keeps coming up with reasons why she can't pay. But as heartless as she may be, Mrs. Platt's not willing to just turn her out into the street. There could be some liabilities for some legal consequences for that. And so she comes up with this, I'm going to make it seem like the little girl is this heartless sociopathic poisoner. Then she'll get thrown in the asylum and at least she'll get three hots and a cot and have her needs taken care of and she'll be out of my hands. Hmm. I like that. I think that's plausible because rather than coaching a kid on what to say, kids' memories are ridiculously good. Mm Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. far as when their parents are telling them off and saying, this is what happened. Oh my gosh, this is, yes. This is what you did. <laughs> they're, they're really good. But if you said, practice this, if they ask you this, say this, they wouldn't really be good at remembering that. They wouldn't associate it with being real. Where if you said, this is what you did, and they walked you through it, and they kept repeating that to you, that becomes fact to the kid. Yep, yep. And in fact, when she does recant, that's what Elsa says. She says that Mrs. Platt kept telling me I did it and I was sick of her bugging me and I wanted her to stop. So, okay. I said, okay, fine. I did it. And that I can really picture. Mrs. Platt's sick of this girl telling her off. Maybe the girl did slip some kind of something into some food. Maybe somebody got a little sick, but maybe it wasn't as calculated and evil as intentional repeated poisonings. And maybe when she's mad at her, she says, 
I'll bet you killed your little sisters, didn't you? You killed them. It's your fault. Mm-hmm. And you say it enough times, and then finally she wants to shut her up, and she says, fine, I did it, which leads you to the next question, which was asked by the judge and others. Well, why did you do it? And she says, I guess I just wanted to see them suffer. But mm-hmm. if you've been around seven-year-old kids, and we have, I have, many of them just want to have an answer to any question. Like, you can ask a question, and you could say, what country is California in? And everybody's hand shoots up. And sure, a couple kids might say the USA. Other kids will say Africa. Africa's not even a country. Like they'll, they'll just have an answer. Yeah. And sometimes also, if kids feel like they're guilty, whether they are or not, they will latch on to a rational explanation for their actions. Mm-hmm. I have a story of this from my own life, and I wasn't even young. I was 16 years old. I was crossing the street at night. I made it three quarters of the way across the street, and a woman driving too fast coming up a hill hit me in my midsection. I flew forward onto her car. I smashed her windshield with my face, and then I fell back onto the asphalt, and I cracked my skull open. But I'm lying there, and the cops show up. Now, I've just been massively concussed in this terrible accident, And this police officer gets down next to my face. And by the way, I'm paralyzed at this point. Not thankfully permanently, but I can't move. I've tried. I tried to get up off the pavement and no part of my body would work. And I was terribly concussed. And the policeman says to me, well, what happened? And I I said, this lady hit me with the car. And he goes, yeah, what happened? And I said to him, and I don't feel like I should have been questioned at this point, but I said to him, well, I guess I must not have looked. Now... I was three quarters of the way across the street. I did look, but my brain, my muddled brain, when I was being grilled, latched on to the explanation that would make it make sense. In other words, well, if I got hit by a car, because what do we sometimes teach our children? Like, if it's you against a 3,000 pound car, you're going to lose. So Mm -hmm. you may have the right of way, but it's your responsibility to look both ways and make sure you don't get hit. How many parents have said a version of that? So where I went with was, well, if I got hit, ipso facto, I must not have looked when I crossed the street. Yeah. And I feel like there's a great chance that that's where Elsa Thompson was coming from. Once it had kind of been beaten into her that she had killed these people, or she just was sick of being told she had and just admitted it so that the lady would shut up or not agreed with it, I should say, not admitted it. Then if someone's going to ask you, well, why'd you do it? Well, what's the logical answer? I mean, I I don't know why I did it. I didn't do it, but let's see. Why would I do it? I guess I wanted to see them hurt, wanted to see them suffer. That just seems like connecting dots. Yeah. 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 I think that theory is the most plausible now that you've said it. Mm. Yeah. That's why I hid it in my back pocket, just because I (laughs) I thought it was a fun exercise to walk through the other theories as well. But I think that's the most plausible also. Uh, a lot, and another thing that it took me a while to kind of land on, because at first I was sort of convinced that she probably did it for the reason that I outlined earlier, that I couldn't really imagine someone being coached against their will into the ability to confound someone who was trying to get them to change their story, an adult. Mm-hmm. But another, a lot of emphasis was put on the fact that she was really emotionless when she was describing all this. Like, oh my gosh, what a ghoul, what a little sociopath. But then I thought about it. At seven years old, if you even know anything about murder, it's absolutely a concept and not a very real one. You're not going to have an intuitive understanding of the pain 
and the grief and the anger and all of those things that are packed into an act of horrible violence. So you're talking about a mathematical concept, a philosophical concept, something that's really not real to you in any sort of emotional way. So in fact, if you're innocent and you're a little kid, talking about it unemotionally, not having an understanding of the emotional weight of these violent acts, I think that actually speaks to her innocence and not her psychosis. That's where I eventually ended up. Yeah, I think that's right. I've gone from thinking, ah, she did it, to she didn't do it. That's where I am. I've fl- fully flipped 180. Yeah, the o- uh, me too. But the only fly in the ointment goes back to the such a highly detailed account. And frankly, I didn't even share with everyone, and perhaps I should have, but I didn't want to spend too much time reading. She really does at least supposedly, have all of these details down pat, where she saw the poisons, where she got them, how she used them, etc., etc. You've heard the story, and supposedly they could never get her to change her story, and that's the one part of it that leaves me with a shadow of a doubt. Because, Stuart, we've just talked ourselves into her innocence, but the narrative of her innocence is essentially that, well, she was, in fact, suggestible. This mean, like, Cinderella's wicked stepmother of a landlady who maybe poisoned her own family and guests by accident with noxious food or botulism or something and then decided to pin it on the little girl, who knows, but that she basically told her she had done something so many times that the girl agreed. So we, we've gone back to she's innocent. She's innocent because she's suggestible or ultimately just went along with the adult in a position of authority. But the logical follow of that thought would be that, okay, well, when these new adults in positions of authority were trying to get her to change her story, that she probably would have. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. It is tough because we were slating people earlier for letting her go so easily when she retracted what she'd said. Right. And, and now we're in the same position. Right. Well... I do, at the end of the day, if I have to pick one, I, I do think that she's, I do think that she's innocent, but it kind mm. of goes back to that catch 22 thing that I was talking about earlier, which is like, if she's innocent, then she's suggestible. But if she's able to keep her story straight like this, how suggestible could she be? Because also I don't believe that in 1925, now there are really set guidelines Horrifically, unfortunately, all of the horrible things that have happened to children over the years, they have very set guidelines about exactly how you question a young child so that you don't suggest anything awful that may not have occurred, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think those guidelines or practices were really in place in 1925. So I find it a little bit hard to believe that no one was putting any words in her mouth when she was getting cross-examined by doctors. A lot of leading questions, I imagine. Right. But she supposedly refused to be led. Mm. On the flip side, there was only a four-day delta between when she was a sociopath child poisoner and when they said, okay, good, she didn't say she did it anymore, let's let her go and go live with her dad and have a normal life. So it could also be that while the story at large may be true, that certain details of it perhaps could have been ginned up or concocted to make it more entertaining. Like the fact that she wouldn't change her story and couldn't get tripped up by psychiatrists. Perhaps that was artistic license by a newspaper man. 
Possibly. It is difficult researching old cases. Yeah. Sometimes the, the name of the perpetrator or the defendant, the victim, it changes from one source to the next. I'm talking f- first name. Right. I've researched yeah, yeah, cases. It's like, I think this person's called John, but this person calls him Andrew. Now, it could just be a middle name that they've called. I've had age ranges on this one particular lady, and it was anywhere from 28 to 60 oh, how old <laughs> how old this person was oh my gosh but then you feel like a fool on the episode saying i sound like i don't know what i'm talking about but this person could be this age and then i have to go logically based on the events that happened and when i think they were born i think this is how old they are but you look you, f- you feel kind of foolish not knowing the fact no it's true it's true sometimes what i will do in that case, because I run across things like that too, is I will just triangulate what I believe in good faith to be the most likely and just kind of go with that. Mm. Only because I don't want to derail the entertainment value of a narrative by getting too deeply into the disambiguation or whatever that yeah. word is. But I but I do feel you 100%. I, I, I end up there too where you're just like, well, which of these is right? Yeah, that's where you hope you can find multiple sources and at least pick the majority rules. Yeah. Well, so yeah, everybody, that is the story of the baby Borgia, Elsa Thompson. I think Stuart and I have decided that most likely we think that she was just an ordinary child who either blamed herself for things that weren't her fault or was told that things were her fault that weren't. But I'd be curious if anybody out there knows more about this case than I do or has a different opinion. So please do, if you'd like to chime in, reach out to the show, kindamurdery at gmail.com. Stuart, congratulations, Stuart, just got approved for ads on YouTube, monetization on YouTube. He does great work. He deserves to be paid for it. So if you like to watch stuff on YouTube, go watch British Murders on YouTube. And, uh, you know, let's get some remuneration for my man Stuart here because, you know, the work that we do, that he does, it's hard work. All this research, all this writing, the hosting, everything, it's hours and hours. And most of us do it because it's just our artistic passion. But, of course, the dream is to actually make a couple nickels to rub together doing it. Am I right, Stuart? Absolutely (laughs) correct. So if you do go across, I appreciate the shout out there. British Murders podcast. Please listen to 30 seconds of the adverts. Don't skip them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because the payouts are quite low. YouTube take a lot of the money. Rightly so. Oh, my gosh. Well, and so do do all of the dynamic ad insertion companies. Um, Until you get successful enough that you get the sponsors who are paying you directly, even if we have ads, guys, we see pennies. So if you want to do something to help support either Kind of Murdery or British Murders podcast that's not going to cost you anything, do this. Subscribe to the show if you haven't. Tell your friends and family. And please, please, please do leave reviews. Preferably five stars would be great. But uh, (laughs) honestly, I'll take anything. Just let us know that you're listening to the show. Let let us at least be emotionally fulfilled, even if our uh, busker's hats are still a little bit on the empty side. Yeah, reviews are crucial because even bad or good, it pushes the show. It, it makes the platforms like Apple, Spotify, it makes them aware that these shows exist. That's right. So please right. go on and, and give my boy a five-star review, please. What's coming up for British Murders Podcast? Like, what should I be looking forward to? Because I, I listen religiously. What do you got on the table? So alongside my regular, I call them seasonal episodes, my normal episodes where it's me on my own telling you a true crime story suggested by a listener. I welcome guests on the show. It could be anyone from authors 
It could be people involved in true crime. I recently spoke to a high court judge who worked at the Old Bailey, one of our most famous courthouses in the UK that deals with murder trials. I've spoken to Britain's top forensic pathologist. I'm hoping to line up an interview with a forensic archaeologist as well as a forensic anthropologist, potentially. Forensic archaeologist? Like you're solving ancient Egyptian murders? I think I think archaeology is forensic archaeology is when they excavate bodies, I oh, believe. So digging sense. them up. So an anthropology is the study of remains such as bones, uh, you know, the skeletal system, right, all that right, kind of right. stuff. So I, th- I think that's the difference. Very similar words. So I'm trying to get one of those to come on. I'm trying to go through all the forensic people. I spoke to a police officer before who's now a writer. I've spoke to Christopher Berry D, who's written loads of true crime books. He's sat down with serial killers. So I try to get guests on that are unique to the niche, but mm. it's it's a good stopgap between the episodes to find out more behind the curtain from professionals who know what they're talking about, as opposed to me. Awesome. So yeah, again, subscribe, review, follow British Murders Podcast. It's a great show. And if you did like today's show, please do subscribe, follow, review. Please do it. It was a great time last time. It was a great time this time. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Kind of Murdery with me. Guys, it's eight hours later for Stuart, so it's the witching hour over there in England. That time. It really is a kindness for him to be here with me. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. Always. For Stuart Blues and the British Murders Podcast, I'm Zevin Odelberg, and this has been Kinda Murdery. If you've enjoyed today's Kinda Murdery, please tell your friends and family, tell strangers, leave a review. It's the best way to ensure that I can keep telling that special brand of bizarre and terrible tales that you'll only find here on Kinda Murdery. Murdery.